0: Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast.
1: This episode is brought to you in partnership with Plate Up for the Planet and the Vegan Society. You can find more information about the Plate Up pledge at discoverthebluedot.com slash plate up. Don't forget, Blue Dot returns in July 2022 for another extraordinary weekend of music, science and cosmic culture. Featuring Bjork Orchestra with the Halley Orchestra and much, much more. Tickets are on sale now. And don't forget to subscribe to the Blue Dot podcast wherever you're listening and leave a review. How easy is it to become vegan? And what is veganism really like? For many, fear of the unknown or misapprehensions about what a vegan lifestyle is like are a barrier to trying it out. Gone are the days of limited vegan options and a plain or unexciting diet. It's now possible to explore a vegan diet that's even more adventurous and exciting than a meat-based one, as well as being better for the planet. And outside of food, easier to dip your toes into a vegan lifestyle than you'd think with beauty, fashion and healthcare industries, all creating new vegan-friendly alternative ranges. In the first two episodes of this series, we explored the animal welfare roots of veganism and its place in fighting climate change. In this final episode of Plate Up, in association with the Vegan Society, we'll be exploring the exciting future of vegan food, some practical tips to starting a plant-based life, and how businesses and local communities can be at the forefront of the fight against climate change, working together to connect closer to nature and the environment. I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is the Blue Dot Podcast, in association with the Vegan Society. So if you've been listening to this mini-series of the podcast and thinking about taking your first dive into veganism, you're probably wondering how easy it is to go vegan. What alternatives are there? And most importantly, can a vegan diet be healthy and tasty? Availability makes a huge difference and as more of the high street stocks vegan options, so the barriers to trying veganism have disappeared. Food delivery services like The Mindful Chef and HelloFresh support vegan options. More and more restaurants now offer vegan options. And social media's full of an ever-growing list of influential vegan tastemakers, with prominent chefs like Gaz Oakley and Ella Woodward, known as Delicious the Ella, promote a vegan lifestyle with cookbooks and blogs to show that the new world of vegan food is as inventive, tasty and exciting as the meat-based diets it replaces. When it comes to trying veganism for the first time, simple steps are often best. Meat-free Mondays have grown in popularity as an easy way to try veganism without ditching the life you're used to straight away, while the Vegan Society's Plate Up for the Planet campaign pushes people to try seven days of plant-based living. If you're feeling really adventurous, Veganuary is a whopping month-long opportunity to ditch meat and other animal products. That's not to mention everyday ways you can bring more veggies and plant-based foods to your dinner plate. Growing your own fruit and veg, even if it's just small amounts, can help change your relationship with plant-based food, while buying seasonal and local produce is not only better for you and the planet, but can make a huge difference to your local economy. And it's not all about healthiness. When it comes to treating yourself, the options these days are almost limitless. Wholesome Junkies are one of Manchester's best-loved street food traders, proudly creating what they call vegan junk food. They were founded in 2017 with one aim, to make delicious, creative, plant-based burgers and hot dogs using ingredients like Satan, truffles and kimchi, and, as they put it, save the planet one dish at a time. So, the million-dollar question, how do they taste? Chelsea Campbell, the founder of Wholesome Junkies, is here to tell us.
2: So basically, when I became vegan five years ago, I was very much still a vegan stigma of lentils, falafels, dolls. Um, I don't eat that type of food. I never have. My mum used to tease me and used to ask me, oh, what do you eat as a vegan mung beans? I've never had a mung bean in my life. So I I love food. I I used to love really indulgent food. I eat my steak blue like I was yeah fascinated with food and it was it was a challenge to try and achieve those flavors five years ago that no one else really was sort of pushing those boundaries. My favorite thing from the Chinese was crispy shredded beef in saffron sauce it still is and I, I actually I, I set myself a goal to replicate this and I managed to do a mushroom I, I chopped up a portabello mushroom coated it in the corn flour fried it off and it still it had that same satisfaction that I got eating meat so for me I still love those textures those flavors but it's just about being creative and finding a plant-based version of it and you know some things don't always replicate meat and it's it's not the desired intention it's the intention of creating these dishes that are similar is to satisfy on a flavor and a texture level rather than trying to imitate a meat product. So yeah, it's about, about instead of just a sloppy doll, you know, I could push the boundaries of this and, and really like, you know, I was doing Donna Kebabs five years ago and things like that, which was at the time, you know, quite quite new. And and the product range I had access to back then was so limited. That was really tough. It was a tough sell. You know, I was making my mac and cheese from cashew nuts that I'd soaked overnight. And then I tried five different other ways, like boiling sweet potato and putting up squash and blitzing that down. And a lot of it was trial and error. And a lot of it was minging. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but... you you keep pushing on and and testing new things. And and now it's so easily accessible to buy vegan products in a supermarket that you don't have to do that hard work anymore. (laughs) It's so readily available. I was trying to like marinate a celeriac and then slice it to sort of make a pastrami, but I can just buy that now, a vegan pastrami. So yeah, it's just great having that absolute wall of selection in a supermarket now it was a tough sell back in the day (laughs) and I'm a new vegan really in the grand scheme of things I've only been vegan for five years
1: for the musician and activist Moby veganism became a new career when he founded the fine dining plant-based restaurant Little Pine in California back in 2015 It was named one of the Food Network's 20 Best Vegan Restaurants in the US and has since led to Moby writing The Little Pine Cookbook, a collection of vegan recipes inspired by the restaurant's best-loved dishes. Moby was inspired to create a restaurant that not only platformed vegan food for the mainstream, but was a home for the many different aspects of his vegan activism.
3: Well, I've owned a couple vegan restaurants and I've invested in others. So, sort of a, what I was talking about earlier is as time has passed, I've tried to think like, what are effective forms of vegan or animal rights activism? And I mean, one of the things that makes being a vegan activist so interesting or an animal rights activist so interesting is there's so many ways to advance the agenda. You know, if you are an activist interested in pancreatic cancer, pretty much all you can do is give money to charities that work on behalf of pancreatic cancer. Like there aren't products or movies or books about it really. Whereas with vegan activism, we can talk about human health. We can talk about worker safety. We can talk about communities, rainforest, animals, uh, deforestation, climate change, pandemics. Like there's so many ways to sort of discuss this and To your question, I sort of have in my mind an activist portfolio, like a pie chart. And a third of that or a quarter of that is giving money to 501c3s. A quarter of it is developing my own content around animal rights activism. A quarter of it is investing in products, you know, with the idea of supporting them. And then a quarter of it is what we'll call other, you know, the flexibility of. You know, whether it's investment whether it's donation whether it's promotion and marketing for existing things and what I had seen having been vegan for such a long time is that vegan food in the early 2000s started to really have its moment you know with restaurants like candle 79 in New York, Mana in the UK and a bunch of other restaurants around the world like suddenly vegan food wasn't terrible anymore and you could bring non-vegans to vegan restaurants and they would enjoy themselves and what i also noticed as the 2000s progressed is that a lot of people who were ostensibly progressive were still eating meat and i this was so inconsistent to me because like my progressive friends in los angeles like you know they're driving electric cars they're voting for democrats they were recycling, they were, you know, supporting organizations that worked on progressive causes, but they were still going to In-N-Out Burger. And so I opened Little Pine and my restaurant in New York, Teeny, that I used to own, um, I opened these as a way of sort of representing veganism in an incredibly attractive way. So it wasn't just about the food, like with Little Pine, it was about the design, it was about the music playlists, it was about the waiters and waitresses, the you know the floor staff, their uniforms. It was about the aprons. It was, everything was designed to represent veganism well. So it was very everything. My when I looked at the restaurant, when I looked at the menu, everything. The criteria was not making money. The criteria was not benefiting myself. It was simply: is this a good extension of animal rights activism? And then when the pandemic hit. I realised I could no longer own Little Pine, so I sold it to some friends of mine. So I still go there, but I don't, I'm not involved with it professionally.
1: For Moby, vegan eating has changed considerably in recent decades, with perceptions of vegan food and adoption of vegan eating skyrocketing.
3: Well, one statistic I think is interesting is that there are more vegan restaurants in a two-mile radius of my house here in Los Angeles than there were in the entire world in 1987 when I went vegan. And I think there was this big moment, let's say in around, you know, early 2000s, when people realized that vegan food could be both delicious and disgusting and delicious and refined. You know, like basically vegan food could be fast food or it could be refined food. You know, it could be a deep fried Veggie burger, or it could be, you know, going to upstairs at Candle 79 on 79th Street in New York. And that was such a change because up until that point, vegan food was health food. And I love healthy vegan food, but I also love that an 18 year old student can go get vegan junk food and a 36 year old financial advisor can go get expensive vegan food in some place like, you know, was what, what it, 11 Madison Park or whatever the name of that restaurant is like. So that's, the change has been phenomenal, you know, the sort of the evolution of vegan food, I wouldn't say away from health food, but sort of expanding the vegan food world so that basically it includes everything. When
1: it comes to trends, the food futurologist Morgane Gay is an expert in exploring the culture shifts that will determine what we're eating tomorrow. As a researcher and consultant, she's worked with the likes of the World Wildlife Foundation and the University College London to forecast the changes in ingredients, recipes and packaging that will be on our dinner table in years to come. The historic trends she's researched in meat consumption and plant-based lifestyles point us in an exciting direction for the future.
4: I think one of the things, obviously what we've been seeing for quite a long time, Is this decline in animal products and meat consumption? We really peaked. I mean, actually, what's really happened is that chickens become the meat that people eat mostly. And that is only quite a recent development in the last 20 years so that things have really been shifting. And I, I always say this, that what's happening in the present day, we normalize it. It's normal because everyone around us doing it and we're doing it. The past is really weird and crazy. And can you believe we're smoking on airplanes? And it's really hard to see, you know, like fish in the see, they can't see the ocean itself. And I think we're the same. So, when we're talking about less meat consumption or less dairy, this has actually been happening for quite a while. And it's a real exponential trend which will continue. And that is why, it's no coincidence, that is why a lot of the meat and dairy brands are producing non-meat meats and non-dairy dairies, I suppose. So these different alternatives, it's because it's easier now to do it, but that's no coincidence that it's easier. It's because more people are doing it, so the brands are responding. And this will continue. And there's loads of really great innovation, especially in Silicon Valley, where they are developing some very exciting solutions that aren't just about creating these options, but about creating these options that also have an environmental benefit as well.
1: The future of non-meat diets isn't just the plant-based alternatives you might see in the shops. At a time of fascinating innovation and new technology, Morgaine's research has found some possible new ingredients you might not have considered, including creepy crawlies and, incredibly,
4: air. There's loads of different possibilities within these non-meat areas there is a lot of wheat protein, which is typically called Satan, which doesn't isn't written like the word Satan, but it's great to say it, isn't it? So I think there's a place called the House of Satan, which I think is pretty good, but it's a it's a wheat protein, but no is not good if you're obviously wheat intolerant or celiac. Then there you've got all the you've got the tofu, which of course is a bean. Then you've got the father bean type proteins like umph, which has come from Sweden, I believe. Yeah, then there's there's just so many iterations with mushrooms, with beans, with different, with pea protein, which has been used quite a lot in lots of, even including the different shakes and drinks and things like that. And then you've got the corn, which is again, sort of a, another bit of the mushroom protein blended up, shaken up, pumped out. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of the thing is that it's quite industrialized and unless you are eating pure tofu, typically the type of fake meats are quite an industrial process. Well, of course, I mean, the insect conversation has been going on forever. I mean, I know I was talking about it about 15 years ago. And I think that there are a couple of fast food brands who are looking at creating something like an insect bite type thing. The blocker we have in this country with insects is that it's considered to be a novel food. And some insects, and of which there are about 3,500 different varieties. Some versions, some different types of insects have the same response as peanuts for people So who have anaphylactic shock. So there's some blockers to insects, but of course... Two-thirds of the world have been eating them for millennia, so it's pretty easy. But we also have a, a blocker because we talk about inse windsy spider. We're so we're socialized around, ooh, creepy crawlies, dirty things with arms, legs, and faces. We don't want to eat those in one go. So, so that's a little bit of a difficult one, but it's out there. Of course, you've got all of the plant-based proteins, mushrooms are. Phenomenal in terms of packaging solutions and food solutions and texture. So they're great. And all of the different pea proteins, beans, they can be made into uh, different substances. I think for me, but the most exciting thing, and this is really where the money is, is the air protein. And it's made from CO2, it's cleaning the air. And this is where the big money is in Silicon Valley right now. So many brands are creating this air protein. And The meat that comes from the air that you know is kind of the air protein makes almost like a probably looks like almond flour. And that is then fashioned into corn-like meat, I suppose. And it's looking amazing, but it's also, of course, got these great environmental benefits so that we don't have to produce anything to make it. We just have to get the technology cheap enough so that we can all have that.
1: While earlier in the series we spoke with Alex Sobel, MP, about the role of government in promoting animal welfare and veganism, innovation from businesses are driving forward veganism too, with some fascinating and exciting results. For the activist and entrepreneur Dale Vince, veganism is at the core of his business. As the founder of Ecotricity and now the owner of Forest Green Rovers, the first football club to become fully vegan, Dale has brought sustainability and veganism into every aspect of his decision-making. And a lot of his work has been in breaking down stereotypes to open up new opportunities.
5: I think the reason for the great attention that we still have at Forest Green is the improbable combination of football and the environment. Everybody looks at that and says, How do you make that work? A football audience surely is not interested in the environment. Actually, we've found that not to be true. Our fans have gone veggie and vegan. They're buying electric cars, using solar panels. You know, they've embraced the whole eco nine yards. And then taking that a little bit further, comes the improbability of how you can take a football club vegan. And and this still shocks people. And it's the biggest question that we have from other clubs and other sports bodies. We work with the UN on a global version of what we've done called Sport for Climate Action, which is about reaching fans of all sport through their favorite sport, teaching them about the climate crisis and what they can do about it themselves, getting them engaged. I like to think of it as trying to make them fans of the environment as well. And, yeah, that's the big question. You know, how can I take my football club, my American football club, you know my cricket club, whatever? How can I take it vegan without having a fan riot? Not so much in cricket, that's that's more of a peaceful sport, let's say. but in football, absolutely. So it's just it's about improbability really. It's about stereotypical assumptions about people, which I think we've found are unfounded. Our football audience, absolutely open to this. We took the time to teach them, show them everything that we do. We don't preach, we don't dictate, we say these are the things we do, this is why we do that, including food. And we hope that some of that goes in and they can see that there's something there they can do at home and we've seen that that works.
1: The work of Forest Green Rovers has been changing preconceptions and also working closely with the community, not preaching or grandstanding.
5: The rescue of Forest Green Rovers was just that—a rescue mission. I hadn't given any thought to what we might find, how it might be, and immediately bumped into a range of things at the club that we had to change. They didn't sit with our principles and our ethics. And the biggest one, day one, we were feeding red meat to our players, and, and we stopped it on that day. The sun called it a red meat ban, which sensationalized it, which we leaned into because we liked that. That was fine. It gave us a platform because we need to raise these issues. We need to wave them in people's faces, you know. So we stopped red meat on day one. And then we, over a period of about three seasons, we took out white meat, then we took out fish, and then we took out dairy and eggs. And so we went vegan over a, a period of about three years. So you could say it was a gradual process. And we took our fans with us and we said to them, look, a football game is two hours every fortnight on average don't come expecting to eat what you normally eat why don't you come and try something new something different and if you don't like our food just bring your own we don't mind it's not a problem so it's a reasonable approach we went out of the way to make great food and that's there's a low bar in football in terms of food quality and taste Uh, so we easily leapt over that and we're now famous for our food you know not only have we done the impossible, taking a football club vegan, but we're famous for our food. It's not just bearable, it's great food. Forest
1: Green Rovers is one great example of how the vegan movement can operate on a local grassroots level. Communities and individuals working together are crucial to making a difference and bringing about change. And that goes hand in hand with real activism. Groups like the Transition Network have become a model for localised communities, making a difference in the fight against climate change. Their model of an international network of tiny, hyperlocal groups is helping people making the connection between their day-to-day lives and their effect on the planet. They describe it as about communities stepping up to address the big challenges they face by starting local. Dale Vince's work with Forest Green Rovers is just one great example of how a change on a local level could create a ripple effect of green behaviour. So it's not just a case of system change. Actions at the most individual and local level can be the change that we need. Andrew Sims. Talking about
0: any of the big, profound challenges of social justice or ecological sustainability, perhaps one of the mistakes that the broader movement who are concerned about this have made over the years is to believe that kind of quite a technical... um, Policy based approach to change was the way to bring about change. But in fact, if you are going to engage people, you've got to engage people where they are. So if you want to talk about the problems of economic globalization, you don't talk about the problems of economic globalization. You talk about the high street. If you want to talk about the problems of maintaining a habitable planet, you don't talk about concentration of greenhouse gas equivalent parts per million, you talk about the food that people put in their mouths. So I think we have to find a language that people can relate to so that we can connect our own actions to those wider systems. And then when we have that conversation, it's easier to get over the false dichotomy you sometimes get between some people saying, well, it's all about system change, what I do as an individual doesn't matter, or other people saying, well, it's all about behavior change, and you know we're the only ones who've got any agency. I think those two things are intimately related, system change and individual behavior change. Individual behavior change creates an atmosphere, creates a community, creates an interest, which allows for the policies that might drive system change to occur. And equally, in achieving any kind of progress on the policies for infrastructure change and system change, well, that creates new opportunities for individual behaviour change. So I think these two things have to be seen together, but we have to have the conversation about something which people care about. And nobody cares, well, people care about few things more than what they put in their mouths.
1: As we've seen over the last three episodes, there's a lot to feel positive about when it comes to how much difference we can make to animals and the planet. As the writer and environmentalist George Monbiot has pointed out, alongside cutting out flying adopting a plant-based lifestyle is one of the best things we can do to make a tangible difference to climate change. Dale Vince is feeling optimistic, if cautious, about the future of the planet.
5: I'm always optimistic. That's my nature. Do I think we're doing enough? No. But then we never have been. But we're still doing more now than we did a few years ago, let's say. You know, Britain has 40% of its electricity from the wind and the sun now, which is incredible. When I started, it was nothing. So that's big progress, but we're still not doing enough. We've got 10 years to get to zero carbon, I reckon, or or a long way towards zero carbon to take the biggest bite that we can out of our carbon emissions. Um, We're not doing enough. The way I see it is this. There are three sectors of society, people, business, and government that all have to change Increasingly, people want this. A survey came out just this week showing that something like 70% of all people across the political spectrum think we should be doing more to fight the climate crisis. Taxing airlines, for example, that kind of stuff. Businesses can see that people want change because they're producing products for that now. Electric cars are a good example. But the rise of plant-based eating is probably the best example. You've got all kinds of players, supermarkets, fast food outlets, all kinds of players now with vegan options because they know people want it. So business reacts naturally to that. And then you have the government, and their job is the most important of all because they control the economy. They have the big levers of taxes, subsidies, and regulations. And regulations tell us what we can do, can't do, and must do. It's the most important thing of all. And at the moment, the system is stacked against renewable energy in favour of fossil fuels and against plant-based eating in favour of animal agriculture. It's simply stacked in terms of regulations, taxes and subsidies. So government could make the biggest difference and it's there that we have the biggest weakness. we have politicians that say the right things, but they do the opposite. And that's our fundamental problem.
1: Switching to a vegan lifestyle comes hand in hand with other forms of sustainability, energy, travel and a philosophy of minimalism, zero waste and less consumerism. One reason for the decline in meat consumption and the increase in vegan living could be a wider shift in consciousness as we understand more about our own place in relation to the environment. Back to Morgane Gay.
4: I think for me, one of the things that's really interesting about the time that we're in right now and what we're looking towards in the future is that things up until now, I would say up until really 2021, as we go forward, we're going to start seeing much more unity And almost like a connectivity between everything. So between us as people, between the way that we think, the power of the human mind, how we affect nature and how nature affects us. And I think that's really the bigger underlying trend or the bigger overarching question is what makes us human. And I think up until now, for many years, we've managed to separate ourselves from nature and go man and nature. We're separate. We're different. That's nature. I'm in nature. And we're going to start feeling a lot more connected. And I think that interconnectivity is going to be the thing rather than a government incentive, rather than anything else. It's going to be the way in which we start feeling and valuing feelings so much more in our day-to-day, in businesses, I mean, not just in a woo-woo way, but in a real practical way, that is going to shift the way we eat, the way we live, the way we consume and how we live on the planet.
1: The challenges the climate faces are clear, but solutions do exist. As Andrew Sims points out, one of the barriers in achieving change is our own perception of the problem and each other.
0: So in achieving the change that we need to do, we've got an enormous number of challenges, very, very big challenges. Some of them are very practical. Some of them are more ephemeral and harder to pin down. I think one of the most difficult challenges is actually belief In the possibility of change at the speed and scale that the climate science tells us is necessary. Now, in response to that, we run a project called the Rapid Transition Alliance, which is gathering evidence from history, but also from today and from all around the world that gives isolated examples that are not yet all joined up in everything from kind of transport to energy to food, where we have seen evidence that we can achieve change at a rapid scale that could potentially be increased in scale. The other big challenge, I think, is our belief in each other. That might sound like a strange thing to say, but there's been a lot of research done on our value sets and how which themselves underpin the kind of policies governments think they might be able to introduce. And What this shows is that whilst the great majority, well over 70% of people, walk around with cooperative, compassionate, caring and concerning values and their attitude to the world, that we think other people have the opposite set of values and we're quite suspicious of other people and we think that other people are very selfish and sort of, you know, high consumers and, and are not going to be open to change. So I think one of the sort of missed great challenges is actually allowing ourselves to believe in each other's possibilities for change. Now, over and above that, there's a much more practical and kind of hard nosed things because We experience a lot of inertia when we try to achieve change because we are locked in to ways of doing things. And we're locked in in lots of different ways. We're locked in by a system of economics that does not properly value the environment, the biosphere, our life-supporting ecosystems. And... It also doesn't recognize that perhaps large parts of our ecosystems need to be left outside of all kind of marketized, financialized considerations altogether. Now, we're also locked in in terms of the infrastructure that we use, which is a very high-carbon infrastructure. Our buildings, our transport networks, those things are quite hard to change. But we're also culturally locked in. We're culturally locked in by a model which is constantly telling us that to live a good life, We need to consume more. We encounter thousands of adverts every day that address us as consumers and activate consumer-type lifestyles and push materialistic-type values. This makes it very, very difficult to change because we're constantly having that reinforced. I think one of the other big issues that we are going to have to deal with is that where the environmental message has got through, it's tended to focus on issues of just substituting a cleaner, greener kind of consumption for an older, more polluting kind of consumption. But I think what the science is telling us that, especially in the high-consuming, wealthier countries, we need to go beyond that and look at absolute aggregate reductions in consumption. And that's something which is finding great difficulty to find any kind of roots in the popular or political conversation. I think one of the other problems we have, of course, is that the people who are by and large in control, at the top of the income stream, the decision makers, are also The polluter elite. These are the people who have very often the highest carbon, highest consumption lifestyles. And that means we've got a tricky situation where the very people that we need to make the changes are themselves um, standard bearers of very high carbon, very high consumption lifestyles. So there's a difficult issue to deal with there. And when we have looked at some of the the models that give us an indication of the direction that we need to travel in, from a slightly more technical point of view, many of these models have had locked into them assumptions about what technology might be able to do, but that technology is not readily available and is unproven. So we've got models for dealing with the problem of the climate challenge, which themselves perhaps have some quite unrealistic dependence upon unproven and distant technologies that are not yet around us. And and I think perhaps on the day-to-day basis, the easiest way of describing that is how often you see people turning towards the language of offsetting. Whereas we've already seen in the last year with extreme weather events that some forest projects which have been designed as offsetting projects um, have burnt down because of the extreme heat and the heat waves and the fire. So if we're looking as one of our solutions to offsetting as a way out of this, as a kind of get-out-of-climate-jail-free card, we've got a problem because it's, it doesn't, it's not like-for-like. Like. It's a kind of carbon laundering. So I think we've got a lot of really big challenges we have to deal with.
1: And this is all part of a wider and philosophical conversation about what it means to be a consumer.
0: So when we start thinking about the changes that could be made, need to be made, the big ticket items are around food, they're around transport, they're around the energy that we use in our homes to sort of heat and warm our our homes. Now, if you want a door to walk through to see some of the possibilities of that kind of thing, you could look at something like take the football club. Forest Green Rovers, they've transformed all those aspects so that they don't use kind of, you know, private individual sort of flash cars to drive around in as as footballers, as we know, in the old days, some footballers like to do, you know, they use public transport, they use renewable energy to power the ground and all the things that they do. And when it comes to their food options, they take sustainability incredibly seriously, and they use sustainable food options as well. So there, you can see, in just like one in microcosm, an example of how you can revolutionise how you do something. I think the other thing to bear in mind, of course, and something that is kind of easily forgotten with all the pressures of the advertising telling us to kind of buy more stuff, consume more stuff, etc., 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 is that. It's been known now for years that beyond the point that we get our basic needs met, the stuff that makes us feel better about life isn't having more stuff. It's having the opportunity to spend time with friends, to be able to kind of take notice of the world, time to learn stuff and to be active. These, incidentally, are all the things that you can do if you get involved in in, in a local sports club, um, or you know, follow a follow a club at Forest Green Rovers, to use the same example for a moment. And when you look at the absurdities of, of the sort of the flip side of that, the way in which, in recent years, when the economy has had kind of incredible difficulties, one of the few areas of the economy that's done well has been the area of home storage. Places like kind of yellow box have boomed. We bought so much stuff that we've got nowhere to put it anymore, so we put it into storage. You know, what were we thinking? And I think this takes us on to another. Area that we're living in a kind of a cultural paint pot, which is constantly pushing the buy more, consume more message. And I think at the very least, given the commitments that have been made from if you think about, you know, the vast over 90% of the UK population now lives in an area where at some level of government from you know parish, local authorities, citywide levels, climate emergencies have been declared. And yet we're still seeing, you know, on sort of local government-owned properties, big billboards pushing polluting SUVs, invitations to fly around the world on long-haul holidays. Sometimes we even see adverts for the fossil fuel companies themselves. Got High-carbon goods and services and high-carbon lifestyles. We think that we've got to, in the same way that we brought an end to sports sponsorship of tobacco's sponsorship of sport and advertising of tobacco around sports, we want to see an end to the advertising of high-carbon lifestyles. And just to continue with the sports example at the moment, if you kind of turn on the TV and watch any football competition or pretty much any sports competition, you will see airlines, car makers, and fossil fuel companies all over it in terms of sponsorship. We've got to change this kind of cultural paint pot, which is normalizing high carbon ways of living. And it's worth remembering too that in making the changes that we're talking about from the roots up, you know, one of the big policy initiatives to make the change is the Green New Deal. We first proposed that in 2008. It was kind of ignored at the time, but it's come back around now. It's a bit of a no-brainer because what it means is you're creating jobs in every community in the country. You're creating jobs that are the most needed um, in the income bracket. You're doing work which is going to improve the quality of life of people who live in drafty homes, poor quality accommodation because you're going to be renovating properties, making them more energy efficient, saving people money by lowering their fuel bills so all the solutions are out there that can work from the roots up the point is to find where you can get engaged so find out what groups are operating whether it's your local transition town initiative or to go back to the same example you know your local foot club that's being a, a pioneer of this type of activity there's everything to gain and nothing to lose in terms of quality of life cleanliness of air our own health as well as planetary health
1: While the challenges of the climate crisis may seem insurmountable, there is historical precedent for movements and legislation on the scale of what's needed. Andrew's work on the Green New Deal was explicitly influenced by one such reform.
0: We know that if we move to more equal societies, it makes other problems and issues much easier to deal with. We know from history, for example... When we came up with the Green New Deal, we very deliberately and specifically referenced the New Deal from under Roosevelt in the States, which was itself a response to an epic economic crisis, a sort of economic failure. Now, with that massive public intervention, which also incidentally was crucial in creating some of the great preserved natural areas in North America, the national parks, and there was a a system the creation of the Civilian Conservation Corps, for example, which was a kind of a, a great previous example. It also led to a compression of income inequality and created a circumstance in which America, after the war, enjoyed some of its highest reported levels of life satisfaction. So, you know, we know these big changes can happen. History is full of them. If people want to see more examples of these, they can go to rapidtransition.org, where from all around the world, from throughout history, you can see moments in which changes have happened. So, I would say to everybody, you know, what are we on the planet? What are we going to do? How are we going to spend the rest of our lives? The things that we can engage in to tackle the climate crisis are things that will make life better for our children. They'll make life better for people on the other side of the world that we've never met, but who we probably depend on in some way or other for our lifestyles, the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear. There is an act of putting together in which there can be a win-win for humanity and the rest of life on earth, but it does involve recognising the need for change. And in recognising the need for change, we all have some degree of agency in that. We have to be creative and imaginative and use it to our best abilities. And by doing so, we give other people permission to do likewise. And when we take those steps, we do not know what we might be capable of. History tells us we are capable of great things as well as very, very bad things, but we can do some really, really great things. And it is the era defining, the generation defining, the epoch defining challenge. And if we rise to it, we can make things better for
1: everybody. So when it comes to the future, there's a lot of cause for positivity. Both Moby and Andrew Sims are feeling inspired and hopeful.
0: There's a wonderful line, the insight from somebody who I read when I was a kind of a teenager and was kind of greatly influenced by a writer called Raymond Williams. And Raymond Williams wrote about how one of our great challenges was how we make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And I think we're living in that moment when that is our challenge.
3: Oh, everything is inspiring. Everything is inspiring. I mean, the fact that Prince Charles came out the other day to talk about how he you know, goes meatless many times a week. The fact that you know, like the lead, some of the leading climate activists are now recognizing, like, oh, you have to be vegan. Uh, the Economist called 2020 the year of the vegan. That was, of course, before the pandemic happened. The products, the growth of veganism, the, the awareness of animal rights, the representation in major political parties, it's so inspiring especially compared to where things were 34 years ago. Like the growth has been phenomenal, but it's also to put it in context and I don't want to be negative, but like, it's still minuscule, you know, like it's still tiny. And I'd say that, you know, there's kind of a simple fact is like humans either figure out how to live without oil and coal and gas And they also figure out how to live without meat and dairy production. And there's a chance that humanity will survive. If humanity doesn't figure those things out, we're done. It's not an elective thing. It's not something we can have an opinion about. It's like, if you stand at the bottom of a hill, and someone at the top of the hill pushes a giant boulder, if you don't get out of the way or fix it, you get killed. And the current... Sort of like environmental destruction, whether that's climate change, ocean acidification, deforestation, like everything. It's going to, unless we fix it, it's going to destroy us. It's going to destroy the only home we have. It's going to destroy most of the mammals on the planet. So I think people still think that they can have an opinion about climate change. And it's not, it's not, you can have an opinion about jazz. You can have an opinion about politicians. You can't have an opinion about global climate, like it's just simple science and fact. Sorry, that's my long-winded way of saying I'm incredibly encouraged by how much growth there is around veganism and the awareness of you know the consequences of using animals for food. But we've moved one percent, and we have to move ninety-nine percent in the next fifteen years, or as a species, we're done. And there's one thing I also say, if I'm being completely honest, like the end of humanity might not be the worst thing. Like we're It's hard to make an objective case based on data and empiricism that humanity is good for this planet. Like, the end of humanity is not, I mean, like, I'm not thrilled about dying. I'm not thrilled about my friends dying. But, like, a world without people has definitely is a lot more sustainable than a world with people.
1: As we discussed back in episode one of this series, the roots for veganism started in animal welfare the belief held by vegans that animals and humans should be equal. And as time's gone on, the reasons to try veganism have grown. Climate change, health and food security could all be improved by moving from an animal-based to a plant-based diet. That's why the Vegan Society have launched the Plate Up for the Planet initiative, a simple campaign to help people give veganism a go for seven days. Over 21,000 people have already taken the Plate-Up pledge and saving over a quarter of a million kilograms of CO2 from entering the atmosphere. That's the CO2 equivalent of driving a car around the world 23 times. You can find out more, get recipes and information on the difference you could make at plateupfortheplanet.org. Thanks for listening to this special mini-series of the Blue Dot podcast, brought to you in partnership with Plate Up for the Planet and the Vegan Society. You can find more information about the work of the Vegan Society and take the Plate Up pledge at discoverthebluedot.com slash plate up. Blue Dot returns in July 2022 for another extraordinary weekend of music, science and cosmic culture with Bjork Orchestral, and much, much more. If you've enjoyed listening to this series with the Vegan Society, don't forget to subscribe to the Blue Dot Podcast wherever you're listening and leave a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.